Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo, the tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. We have been using this platform in recent months to introduce you to people who are working for Metal Arc Media now. And you know, at this point, if you've been listening to our show, that Kate Fagan has come aboard. We've made another announcement today. Tom Haberstrow is also a part of Metal Arc Media now officially. You will hear from him on this platform and his story and how he got here, his biographical journey to us and we're going to do Kate Fagan's story now with you because we're very excited to have her. If you haven't checked out journalistically just what she's done in the last couple of weeks for Sports Illustrated, she wrote a cover story and she did a mystery crate for us on Sue Bird and Megan Rapino. that's going to just elevate everything we're doing around here. And her new book is called All the Colors Came Out, and it's a lovely tribute to her father, and it's coming out today. We've promoted it way too much around here, but you should read it. It's an easy read, and it will tell you more about Kate Fagan than maybe this interview will. But What Made Maddie Run was also a New York Times bestseller for her, and so we're just thrilled about the work. I believe she's going to do the best work of her career right now because she's more ready than she's ever been. She left the ESPN because she was kind of bored by the daily minutia. And so we chronicle her work there and what she aspires to here. And the starting place on this conversation is a charity that she cares about because the last time that we talked about this with her, it tied into how it is that she left the ESPN to go tend to her father at the end of his life and repair the things in their relationship that needed some healing. So Kate Fagan, we're delighted to have her aboard here. Here's part of her story, though, starting with why it is she's involved with that charity. You might think that the worst of it was uh, while we were on air, but I almost went to the ER an hour later. My wife had to say, you're not going to the ER for eating a pepper. So I didn't go to the ER, but I almost did. So there was a, a fight or flight moment there. So you had to be talked out of it. Were you picking up the phone? Like, well, you were hopping in a car. I just looked at her. I was like, I think I should go to the ER because I, the only time I felt pain like that was when my appendix ruptured in high school. So I just was really scared that it wasn't going to stop. And she's the one that was like, you just gotta, you just gotta endure the pain. Anyway, my point being that if you thought that it peaked on air, it did not. <laughs> All right. Well, you're going to do it again here for this South Beach session, right? I, well, it's a ghost pepper, right? Ghost pepper for today. Yeah, Carolina Reaper. Does Kate not know that we're going to air all of this about her struggles, that that's going to be the starting point <laughs> on her suffering, that she almost went to the hospital? Because that's where we're starting with Kate Fagan. We're delighted to have her be a part of everything we're doing around here, Metal Arc Media, Dan Lebetard show with Stugatz. If you're not familiar with her work, it is about seven years with ESPN, ESPNW, doing writing feature stories outside the lines. And then her path took her elsewhere to write some books and do some other things. And now she returns to sports and sort of sports and the way we're going to do sports around here, which is more sociological than it is sort of digging down on the granular things. So we're happy to have Kate Fagan be a part of everything we're doing here. You may have been introduced to her when she did the hot pepper challenge 
with Tom <laughs> Haberstroh. She's trying to do good things and has been for a long time in terms of helping people who need some help. I imagine, and Kate, thank you for making the time, and thank you for joining us on this venture. I imagine at some point, I don't know what age you were, what time or what was going on in your life, you sort of started to question the worth of what it is we do for a living and how it is that we were doing it somewhere along the path after seven years writing thorough stories, reported stories, caring deeply about the elements of sports that drew you to sports. Yeah, it, it happened probably a year after I started doing TV at ESPN because I didn't want to do TV. I remember Tony Reale came down, the host of Around the Horn came down to a book event I was doing in DC and he asked me if I, if I had any interest in doing Around the Horn and I told him no. And it wasn't until after the Ray Rice domestic violence crisis that ESPN really leaned on, which is an ironic thing to begin with, that it took something like that for ESPN to start realizing that it needed more women on air. But it was after that that I started doing more TV. And about a year into it, I couldn't write as much anymore. And I started to feel a little bit like a day trader. <laughs> like I remember my sister had worked in, in finance in New York and she reached a point where she didn't think what she was doing had a ton of value. And I started to feel very similarly that I was putting all this work into saying things on air, like making predictions, and they just kind of floated into the ether. Nobody held me accountable for them. And I didn't do much about it until my dad got sick. And then that was like, wait a second. Like, I, if I'm going to be spending time away from him, I better be doing it for something that um, that has value and that I'm passionate about. Well, you decided to write a book about his passing, about your repairing of your relationship with him. But before we get to that portion can you sort of take me through the sort of soullessness of of those realizations and how they came to you? It was that stark. It was with your father's sickness. I knew that at ESPN, I knew that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. But and I'm sure, Dan, you've had this internal struggle, too. They're paying me well. I'm kind of caught up in doing it around the horn and looking at my Twitter mentions. There's all these tangential benefits to doing TV and taking a career path that maybe didn't feel as substantive to me, but I, I got a pretty addicted to the tangential benefits of that world. And so I'm not sure that if my dad hadn't gotten sick that I would have allowed myself to step away from it because I was at a point where I was like, I'd almost just said, you know what, I'm just going to completely sell out here. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to stop thinking about the storylines and the topics that I had cared about coming in. And I'm just going to fully give myself over to like the star fucking beast. That's kind of the place I, I thought I was leaning. And my dad's sickness was when I was like, that really made me pull back. And so that, that was definitely the catalyst. And I'd also written a book about a young female athlete who died by suicide and writing that and looking at achievement culture had also had also had me questioning my own decisions. Well, what did you learn while writing What Made Maddie Run? It was a New York Times bestseller, and it's a broad question, but it speaks to what you're saying, right? Yeah. The broad answer is that I had really believed the societal equation that achievement will equal happiness. Like, I'd really bought into that, especially getting to ESPN. I, I was like, well... I'm finally making it and I'm going to achieve all of these things that I've always dreamed of achieving. And I assume that when I get there, I will be happy. And 
I realized that I wasn't that yeah, obviously it was like this kind of moving goalpost thing, but writing that book and going around to talk to student athletes on college campuses and seeing them believing that same equation and struggling so deeply because it wasn't satisfying. I started to feel a little hypocritical that I wasn't applying that logic to my own life. What an amazing thing to discover in a mirror, the idea that your entire belief system, because you're talking about ESPN, but you came up through sports. It's the entire reward system for sports is the overrating of being competitive and the overrating of the happiness that comes in competing. Mm -hmm. But even in sports, so many of these athletes, like I think there's moments in your sports career, and certainly for me as an athlete, where maybe you're in this perfect balance where simply the pursuit of getting better and the losing the sense of self-consciousness in the middle of games and, and workouts and pickup is its own reward. And there is that like soul satisfying nature of it. But even athletes get to a place where they're worried about the stat sheet and they start to worry about the perception of others. And they start to worry about the cheers after the three pointer rather than just like the pure feeling of watching the ball drop through the net. And so even was speaking to athletes who weren't in careers and they were dealing with that own sense of like, I have no identity outside of the value I'm placing on how I play this game. A book is such an arduous task. So what is the correct answer to the question? What made Maddie run? There was actually a debate about having the title be what made Maddie run because I knew, and I knew right from the beginning that it wasn't a question that you can answer. And I fought to almost have, well, I fought to not have a question mark on it, which is a tiny distinction. But I think the question mark sets it up as like, here, we're positing this question. And within these pages, you are going to find the answer. And the lack of the question mark made it more of like kind of an open-ended statement. Because one thing I learned right away in trying to understand what had happened with Maddie was that it was always going to be a collision of like dozens of variables and it was never going to be one like easy answer to, to serve up to people. What was the journey for you to go from what it is you were doing at ESPN to the writing of that book, which was a byproduct of a story that moved you for other work you were doing for ESPN? Did you even imagine yourself as an author of that kind writing books? I had always wanted to write books. I thought of myself more like I would write fiction, but when I came out of when I stopped playing basketball, I didn't have the resources to sit around and write fiction. And so when I got into journalism in the first place, it was to learn the craft of writing in some way and to be able to pay bills and be have a career while I'm trying to chip away at understanding what writing is. So being able to write what made Maddie run was like the fulfillment of what I had set out to do in my career, which is to be able to take time to think things through and to try to talk about sports in a way that was more about the ideas and a way of looking at life. So writing that book again, at the same time, you know, studying to be on things like first take and around the horn, there was like a huge dichotomy between spending a weekend living in this world and trying to explain really what I thought were critical ideas about how our culture was changing us and changing young people. And then feeling like then I'm going on TV shows and like cramming my mind full of stats and like very starkly realizing the two satisfactions within those were drastically different. What a mind bleep, huh? To think you were getting to the top of the sports ladder and then to get distracted by the addictions, the glories, the silliness, 
and to have your soul feel like it's deteriorating by degrees because you're almost on television gas bagging doing the exact opposite of what you want to be doing which is thinking about these things thoughtfully thinking about these things nuanced not arguing about them but thinking about complicated subject matter in a way that allows you to use sports to move people or touch people yeah and and the at the heart of like what I started when I started at ESPN or the Maddie story was not knowing the answers. That was the heart of everything you did. Like you, you walk into a space as a journalist and the point is you don't know anything. And I started to have so much anxiety doing TV because there was no place to not know something. Wherever the conversation spun on first take or wherever, you can't be up there going, I don't know. Or you can say something stupid, of course, but you're going to get called out. So it was like this constant anxiety of like, I, I knew that I, I've never watched an NHL game in my life. Right. So, but, but having answered like 30 questions on around the horn about it, like the anxiety level on like inside my body was always really off because I knew I was being a fraud. Did you have some trauma about that? Did the doing of television, that sounds unpleasant, all of that. Yeah, I had, um. I even I would talk to friends who worked in you know, psychotherapy, psychology, whatever it is. And I would tell them my experience of the first time I did around the horn when I messed something up so that we had to stop the segment and redo it. And whatever happened in that moment, like the sheer panic of it, the embarrassment, the shame of it, even though now I can look back and it's not that big of a deal. You know, like everyone at some point on around the horn caused us to retape a segment. Like it didn't, it wasn't that big of a deal, but whatever happened inside my body, the first time I was ever the cause of it, it was some sort of neural pathway that got paved because whenever I sat down for around the horn, there were times when I had to stop my teeth from chattering before we started and that I had to have to like tape really deep, breaths and I and I couldn't really understand where where the anxiety and panic was coming from because I knew there was a safety net I knew we could do something over I knew it was supposed to be fun but I was really having a hard time with like the performance of it because I didn't feel like I was present I felt like I was constantly like searching my mind for the the thing that I had remembered instead of like living in the present and that that caused some kind of internal reaction in me in retrospect, that's your body screaming, get out of this. It's not for you, right? Yes. And it took me a very long time to say, to admit that to myself because I thought everyone thinks this is so cool. I mean, everybody in my life thought it was the coolest, right? My dad thought it was the coolest. He, his friends would be like, we just saw Kate on TV. So there was all these benefits and I didn't want to be the person who said, you know what? This really cool thing that is most people's dream isn't my dream. Like, that's, that was tough for me to even admit to myself. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13.
What a spiritual revelation, though, in retrospect now, to know that making those decisions are what healed your relationship with your father at the end of his life. Good God, what a moment of epiphany to go to the other side of that discomfort. Yeah. Spending that last year of his life with him and sitting with him and being present with him and having the conversations that I had intended to have for over a decade, but just couldn't be vulnerable around him. But finally, just like chipping away. And if you spend enough time with someone and you allow yourself to actually really be present, not a day goes by that I don't feel so much gratitude for having experienced that and been lucky enough to like make whatever are quote unquote the right decisions at the right time. You quit your job to be at your father's side as you march together toward death. That's the book that you're writing, correct? Because I I talked to you recently and you were saying that it had a Tuesdays with Maury quality to it. Mm-hmm. And you also said that it just helped fix your relationship with your father, that you were able to grieve this differently because of whatever tranquility was summoned at the end. Yeah. And I, so the, yeah, the book is essentially like a Tuesdays with Maury for millennials. And, you know, there's a lot of basketball lessons throughout it because my dad played pro ball overseas. He played division one here and then he played overseas. And so he taught me the game. And so the book is that last year with him, but also looking back on our childhood together and how he peppered in these basketball lessons that really ended up being life lessons. And well, I mean, I just I also think about like COVID and, and people who haven't had that time at the end with their loved ones. But when he passed, like we we were all there to say goodbye. And like there was there was nothing there was nothing left for us to say to each other, which is what was what you hope for at the end with, with someone that you're so close to. What was your relationship as you arrived for this period of your life? And what was your relationship after going through the process with him? I grew up with him every day playing basketball with him. And it was actually always really interesting getting the question from people about, you know, sexism in, in sports because I had grown up playing pickup and I was, there was never another woman playing pickup. It was me, my dad, and like his eight to 10 friends. And so I was really comfortable and used to being in spaces that were all guys. And so I'd never really, you know, as a separate aside, like it really affected my view on sports media and interactions later in life. But but growing up, we we played together hours every day and we kind of started to have this divide when I decided to go play hoops at the University of Colorado because I didn't ask him. I was from New York. And so I went across the country to school and he was really blindsided by that decision. I, I wasn't even aware enough to like factor him into the equation of my decision. I just always was more adventurous than him. And I think he, you know, I came to learn that I think he felt like we had done this thing together. We had grown up together and he wanted the opportunity to experience my college career. I didn't even consider this. And it really, really hurt him. And we never talked about it. So I go away to Colorado. He's pretty hurt about that decision. And and we just started to veer apart when I was done playing, like I didn't want to play every weekend with him and he loved playing up until his ALS diagnosis. And so I kept saying no to playing. I I came out as gay, but to my mom, not to him because I just couldn't be vulnerable around him. And that pushed us further apart. And so when he had his ALS diagnosis, like I still talked to him every day, but it was, it was always about sports 
it was always pretty surface level for the most part. And I knew that there was just so much to apologize for, things that I had missed, things that had driven us apart that I knew were my responsibility. And I just I just couldn't bring myself to say these things to him because it had all calcified. And so over the course of the year, just being in front of him, you know, and, and he's he's vulnerable. He's getting more and more vulnerable physically and emotionally. And so we just started chipping away at the conversations we needed to have, apologies that needed to be said about maybe they weren't needed, but they felt they were needed about moments where we had made mistakes with each other. And we just kind of gradually over the course of the year came together until those last weeks and months. It just I felt very simpatico with him. Like I had returned to him coming home from work and like looking at me and me knowing that meant we're going to shoot hoops now. I felt like there was that same kind of like cosmic connection that we had had when I was a kid. From what age were you the only girl out there playing against adult men? And your father, you said, was a pro. So you're playing at what age with people who are probably pretty good at basketball? There were stages. I first went and I was too young and I would uh, sit in the bleachers, right? And like do whatever you do when you're in second, third, fourth grade. Then there was a, I went from a really young age. I went from as far back as I can remember. I would go, but I wasn't allowed to play. You know, you scamper out into the middle of the court and you take your shots while they're getting water. Then there was a chunk of time where I was used if there were nine players. And so I would stalk the cars coming down the road, knowing that like if one more showed up, I'd be bumped out. And maybe that happened like every 10 times we'd end up with nine and be like, well, Kate's playing. And then when I was, I want to say 11 or 12, my dad walks in because he did play pro ball. So you can imagine he's like, he's the man. And he said to the guy running the game, he was like, here's 20 bucks. Kate's playing every week from now on. And he would pick me first in every game. So that was like probably age 11 to 12. And all throughout that, there was never another woman on the court. And so I think that it certainly helped me when I started covering the Sixers. And when I got to ESPN, not just having played basketball, but being in spaces with all guys and feeling like I understood the camaraderie that existed there. That wasn't a foreign space to me. What do you think your father was doing with all of that? And what? how did it escape your attention that he might be doing some vicarious living through you and want to be a part of whatever your collegiate decision was? It's a good question now how it escaped my view because it seems so obvious now. I think I started to realize when I was older that he was pretty needy. You know, he was he'd grown up with like five brothers and sisters. He didn't like to be alone. But I didn't I didn't think as a 17 year old, I thought that about him because he's like six foot five, former pro basketball player. And I also didn't realize that, like, I got this really huge wanderlust adventurous streak from my mom. So it was like the idea of playing within two hours from home felt like it was suffocating to me. I got that from my mom. And so I was just lit up at the idea of like going to Boulder, Colorado from someone who came from upstate New York. And I thought, man, my dad's like, you know, he's like this. He's the star of Albany, New York basketball scene. You know, he's like the big shot. He doesn't need he doesn't need me to be at his hip anymore. Um, But I really that was a huge miscalculation. It was a huge one. Why couldn't you be vulnerable around him? I think that I'm not going to say he wasn't good at it. Um, I don't think he was good at it. I think the the coming out part was a huge piece of it because 
me not telling him and only telling my mom, I lost a lot of trust with him. So I think from then on, he started to be a little wary that I wasn't telling him the full version of my life. And then I started and like that created a separate splinter in our relationship where I felt like I was projecting judgment of me from him. So those are all those are all like outside factors. But I think the internal factor was like we had a relationship where like we were in competition too. like there's camaraderie, but there's nobody in my life who I've ever been more mad at than my dad. Like I, the only time I like I have thrown basketballs at his head when I lose to him or when he says like he used to like to needle me with like kind of trash talk. So, Dan, you're getting to a question here where like, I don't know, like, I don't know what it was about both of us that. OK, I mean, I do know, actually, I think. um, I think that we we were so much alike and there was something if I had made better decisions along the way that like we could have been, it could have been a beautiful relationship and and it was, and it was for its own reasons. But I think we really had something special in who we each were as people. And when I missed the boat on that, it was so much, there was a lot of pain and shame in it. And I, and I got, and I didn't know, I didn't know what road to go down to fix it without feeling like I'd missed so much. So it was better to just not address it with him than really open it up. How hurt was he by the idea? I don't know this, right? But how hurt was he? Maybe you covered some of this ground as you healed and repaired the relationship, but how hurt was he by the idea that he thought that you thought that he wouldn't accept you and love you as you are, that you shared the coming out with your mom and not him and that his heart somehow got broken in that because how could you not think I would love oh. you and accept you the way you are? Yeah. Um, that was, that was a huge piece for him. I think, I think he felt misunderstood by me. Um, I think he felt really misunderstood and this thing always used to happen where, cause my mom and I are so close that, if I had some like new thing that was happening in my life or some cool piece of news to tell them, I would always tell it to my mom and then my mom would tell him and it would further hurt him. And every, I started to realize that and there would be days, there'd be times where I would purposefully tell him something so that when he went to my mom and was like, did you know Kate did this? And my mom said, no, I didn't. He would start to feel like she trusts me. She sees me. She sees who I am. She sees my loyalty to her, my love for her, like my unabiding like fatherhood to her, regardless of who she is or, or, or the decisions she's made. But that first one, I think hurt him so deeply. And I didn't, I never, I don't think I ever came out to him ever. It wasn't like I came out to my mom and then came out to him two years later, like a decade. And I never even mentioned it to him. I can see how that would be something that was hurtful. I could also see how it is that you would miss that as you grow up. There are all sorts of difficulties and thorns along this path as you realize who you are and break free from your patterns and find your voice and your identity and everything else. Have you ever done more important work or work that felt 
as large as the idea of stepping away to write a book? You went in with the intention, I'm going to go heal this relationship and and chronicle it, correct? Or did you just go no. in, I'm going to I'm going to help my father, and then the emotions got stirred? Yeah, the the on the front end of it, leaving ESPN, you know, he was the catalyst. There were other reasons, um, but he was the catalyst, and the goal was only, only to ensure that he knew that I saw what he had done for me, that the childhood that we had shared, like I knew it was unique and that I wanted to restore to him the joy of what that was at the end and help him at his end, the way that he had shaped me at my beginning. That was the sole purpose because I knew that I knew that if I didn't fix it, I would never, not not a not a week would go by in my life where I didn't deeply deeply regret it, and so it was like, it was a, became a mission to make sure that that never happened. And it was only, it was only you know it was probably about three months after he died that I asked my mom what she thought about me writing about it, because I had I had started to see the lessons that I learned in it and how. I knew that I had a lot of people in my life who caught up in the culture the way it is, who had questions about like, do you leave your job to go help family? Like, when do you do that? Do you do that? How can you pause your life and start it again? There are just so many people who don't know how to be with people at the end or know if they're capable of it. And I, I didn't think I would be capable of it. I'm not a ver- I'm not a risk taker. I don't. I, I didn't think of myself as like a hugely compassionate person before this. And so I knew that there were going to be, I knew that there'd be lessons in it for me too, that obviously I, I needed to be present for his pain and that that would be scary for me, but that I needed to do it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What do you regard as the other lessons? What do you regard as the other interesting things that you learned that you just didn't see coming? So the way that basketball played a part was surprising to me. Like a lot of the things that he did and taught me, I kind of thought were like quirky, small things at the time. Like there were so many times where we'd be driving around and he'd, he'd find a game, he'd find a game that looked good. And I'd be like, well, that's a good game, but you don't have your sneakers. And he'd be like, do you think I'd get into a car without a pair of sneakers in the car? And I didn't have my sneakers, right? And then I, I would have been a little younger then, and he'd go get his sneakers. And of course, he had his sneakers. You know, at the time, I'm like, oh man, my dad's obsessed with basketball. That's so quirky. But I started to realize, like, part of it for him was like, you don't know the moments in life where the thing you love to do will be accessible to you. And how are you going to miss those moments when it is accessible to you? Like, you better have your sneakers in the trunk. It's the same as like having your guitar tuned. Whatever it is, like there are all these things that life will put friction in the way of you doing what you love to do. And like and your job is to not let it. 
And so there were there were all these different things like that that were centered on basketball. But I started to realize they were really about how to be in the world and how to be with people in the world. And I wanted to honor him for that because there were things that along the way, maybe I, I didn't see them for the bigger and maybe he didn't even either. Right. Maybe he just loved hooping. Right. He wasn't trying to tell me any life lesson about doing the thing you love. But I started to see them that way. You must be so excited about that book being shared with the world because you could teach all his lessons through the sport that he loved. Yeah, it's um, he's on the cover. He's like a painted version of him on the cover. And it's a picture of us in in Brittany in France when he played hoops in France. I'm not on it, but I in the real picture, like my sister and I are in his arms and he always loved me being at ESPN and he loved to like call into a radio show that I was hosting. He loved kind of being my little correspondent. And I tried to do to like include him in my world as much as I could because he loved sports. Like he would watch sports every night, like more. I mean, I stopped watching sports every night and he was still doing it. So this idea now that his legacy possibly like if, you know, if if the the book connects with people and and I honestly, whether it does or it doesn't in terms of the, you know, the outside validation of it selling copies is much less important to me than this idea that I am lucky enough to have like captured all of the life lessons that he taught me and the love I feel for him and put it in one beautiful package. Like the fact that I get to do that is truly a gift. How many months were you by his side? It was the last, about the last year of his life. It wasn't, I would, I would spend um, one week in Albany, New York and one with my family here in Charleston and just kind of bounce back and forth for that um, full year. And what would you tell the audience about the healing that was done to your relationship within that year, the particulars of why that healing was able to make an appearance, how you cracked through all that. Neither one of us wants to be vulnerable because we're both similar this way. So I think the big lesson that I took from it is that like a lot of things in life, and I have this belief pattern too, I think we believe we're waiting for the huge bolt of inspiration. You're waiting for all of the surrounding circumstances to be most amenable to the outcome you want. Like anyone who wants to write, you know, you're just picturing the time when you can rent the cabin in the woods. And I think for a long time, I thought about the relationship with my dad in those terms that someday after, you know, it would have been at that point, 17 years of calcification around decisions we had made that had hurt each other. All it was going to take was like one trip to get a coffee. And it doesn't work like that. You know, certainly that can be the start of something, but more than anything, I needed, it's almost like you put a, a nice cube in water, like you need the time for it to melt. You need to be in each other's presence to like chip away at that. You, you can't fix it with one phone call because it feels too quick. It's, it's, a, it's a presence and a time thing. And that was the huge lesson I learned was like the more we were in each other's presence, the more I was willing to like touch him, you know, and put, put a hand on his knee and wrap him in a hug and not do the kind of like quick kind of like pat on the back thing I'd done for years. And those things were all slow burns, looking him in the eyes longer, past the point of like when you would normally turn away and be like, oh, dad, but like long enough to be like living in the moment of like, how the fuck did we get here? How did we get here with this 
awful disease in this moment in time. Like, aren't we still just 15 year old me and 40 year old you? And those are all time, 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 time. What a tremendous symbolic gift that I'm sure is not lost on you for him to give you at the end that you making the choices you made because of him for him, because of your love for him would open up the pathway to you being your best and truest professional self. Yeah. And, um, I, I honestly get the sense that in his last months, he knew that he knew that as much as you, anyone could see my decisions as like a gift to him, that those hours together, those days together were him restoring something in me and pouring into me a level of like understanding, compassion and love that I had been missing. And I think he kind of knew, I think he kind of knew what he was, that his, his end was kind of going to allow me to, to transform, you know, transform my life in a way where I started to live and prioritize the right things. One of the things that Metal Arc is going to aspire to is to allow people to chase their dreams, to do the biggest and the best work of their lives. So you, for those who don't know, have been covering women's sport very thoroughly in a way that is very passionate. And now you get to combine all of the life lessons you've learned with the reporting you're doing and the writing that you're doing. You're doing some stuff for Sports Illustrated. So what can you tell the people about the specifics of this next project that you're working on? What you think needs to be impressed upon the audience that they might be missing about women's sports and what's happening mm. in the WNBA? Because we tend to cover these things pretty flimsily. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm so well, first, I should say, and Dan, you and I talked about this over the weekend is that although I'm on this podcast and we have just spent a long time talking about a very, you know, intimate, painful, but also at times uplifting um, topic. Like I am beyond excited to finally find a place in the sports world where I feel like I can be the person I was growing up, like hanging out with guys and, um, and some women too. Right. But hanging out and feeling like I can be fully present and like, all of my personality can be part of it because so much at ESPN, it was like, here, we need you for five minutes on this really intense domestic violence case. And, or we need you on OTL. And it was like, you were different people in different moments, but you were never your whole person. And so that opportunity is, it has filled me with like a lot of purpose over the last you know month or two and thinking about what that could look like. But separately, one of like the accumulation of ideas, you know, we, we all have like stories like that. I think when we work in this business where we're like, man, everywhere I go, right. Working at ESPN, covering female athletes, like I'm gathering insight about like the sociology of why we watch sports. And it's something I've thought about for like five to seven years. Like, okay, why do we watch the sports we watch? Is it something intrinsic about those sports or is there, external motivators that create our passion for different leagues and different, you know, athletic endeavors. So I think this story I'm working on, you know, for, for sports illustrated and something that I want to translate in parts to Meadowlark is like really assessing 
why do we watch sports? Is it because men can like soar and do windmill jams or are there larger social factors at play? Like the money, the investment, the stakes and storylines that drive our, that drive our passion about sports. So that's one of like my pet projects that I think, I think I can say it in a pretty compelling way. Once I have like all the pieces lined up in my mind. But you don't want to give too much away about the specifics uh, because some of the stuff well, that you cover, you, I think that you are about to embark on the most meaningful time in your career for a variety of different reasons. But because you've lived enough and learned enough about yourself for your journalistic voice to have some echo, to have some carry. And so you are writing books and you're doing this meaningful work, but you are choosing the specifics after liking and then rejecting the addictions of the cotton candy of television. You're like, you know what I'm going to do in 2021? I'm going to write for magazines. That's the future. I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there was, uh, hey, as a child of the 90s, writing for Sports Illustrated was like the pinnacle. And I think that this particular story that I just finished, like the first draft of, like, I think people who read it will, I hope, if they're open minded enough, will change what they think about the WNBA. Because, like, Dan, there are moments on the sports calendar when we're all tuned into women's hockey, right? Like every four years when they play Canada, we care. So we have all of these examples of when female athletes transcend. And you, it's usually around like a World Cup or an Olympics often. And, and we're talking about team sports here. And what are, the, what are the commonalities between those things are that we all understand the stakes of an Olympics and a World Cup. You know, those are like internationally agreed upon stakes. A gold medal matters in our world. And those are two worlds in which we usually learn the storylines of some of the participants, whether it's because the Olympics are often fueled by small little vignettes. So... I have over the years like cultivated this idea of like, you know, and I'm not the first person to ever say, but like stakes and storylines are driving males, our interest in sports more than whether or not a female athlete can dunk. I think, did you ever watch uh, Succession? Yes. Do you remember the series premiere where they're playing a terrible game of baseball with the family? Yes. And then Karen, Karen Culkin offers a million dollars if the kid on the sidelines can hit a home run. I've never had a higher heart rate in a series opener because of how badly I was invested in that kid's success. And to me, that's like a perfect indication of stakes and storylines. You knew instantly that this kid and his family were in need of the money. And the stakes were pretty agreed upon in our culture that a million dollars is a big deal. So all of a sudden, I'm riveted by this terrible kid in a terrible pickup baseball game performing well. So I'm using that as an example to say that, like, we can all believe we watch sports for one reason. And it's because LeBron James can, you know, do some sort of physical feat that we don't think we're capable of. But the real reasons are actually uh, much more human than that, much more ground level. And I think as we start to and I'm hoping, you know, one of the things I care about in this transition to Meadowlark is like one of the things I care about is like having people look differently at a lot of these ideas because I see a future in the next like five to 10 years where like we realize that female athletes are a huge part of the future of sports. And I want to be a small part of that big part of the future. We're thrilled to have you be a small part of the big part of the small <laughs> part of whatever it is that we can do around here to support and contribute 
to that because it's one of the things that we hope to be about. We will be talking to you more on the radio show as we go forward here and having more conversations like this as we are very excited that Kate Fagan is becoming a part of our world because we will do some learning here. She has done some real living and some real reporting and some real work on herself, on her life, on sports. And we're happy to have, um, I'm, I'm guessing what you think is going to be the best and happiest, I hope is going to be the best mm. and happiest time in your career because you've learned what you need and what you don't need. Yeah. And, and being a part of, of this pirate ship and <laughs> this world and Meadowlark, this is a place where for the first time I've made a decision where I'm like, I want that. I want to be a part of those people, those ideas, that future, not, I'm kind of caught up in this. This feels good tangentially, but like, that's what I want. And that's who I want to be around and what inspires me. And that is, that is a place I, I didn't think I'd ever get. Neither did we. Mike, I'm guessing, probably thought uh, he accuses me of being a grief eater sometimes on these things. But she does have a book coming out, Mike. And the book <laughs> the, bo the book is about like it's about some subject matter that has some depth to it. And I know I can grief eat on these things, but uh, it's it, it's a book that she's promoting. Mike, I've never heard the phrase grief eat before. Oh, uh, he's usually, El I guess Cuco. I would think... <laughs> He's El Cuco. He he just lo he lives off of sad stories, and um, it's not that. normally we usually call him out on on it. But I was riveted by this entire. The, interview. Kate, the reason oh. the uh, for those who don't know, because they make fun of me a lot, as if I like to go to these dark places just because. I believe these dark places are where you will find the roots of how people are shaped. I believe that there is on the other side of pain a great deal of growth. There's an on the other side of that darkness, there is a lot of light. So my intention is never to make people feel sad about this stuff. My intention mm -hmm. is to introduce someone like her to the audience because here are these formative things about her that. Uh, uh, she has learned that aren't unlearned, like they're important, but that's me defending myself through a series of rationalizations that Mike thinks is just, I just grief eat, uh, substantive grief eating. Yeah. So are we, do we're doing douche or no douche now? Is that right? <laughs> that's right. Grief eating. Douche or no douche, Kate? <laughs> well, hey, no douche, because I'm, uh, I'm thankful for this interview, Dan. Okay. Well, so are we, and we're thankful to have you with us. Thank you, Kate. Uh, welcome to the family. Thanks, Dan. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks to Kate Fagan. A reminder, if you want to support the things that we're about, that she's about, All the Colors came out is the name of the book, and it is a book that is worth your time, a lovely tribute to her father and just life lessons learned when you love somebody and a story of family. Next week, we're going to learn about Tom Haberstroh's journey. Again, really delighted that both of these people are aboard. They're going to make Meadowlark Media better than it was. Excited to work with them. Tom Haberstroh next week. Talk to you then. Again, a reminder, rate, subscribe, and review on everything we're doing around here. Because if you're supporting Levitard and Friends and the network, you're supporting all of these journalists who are continually trying to do this storytelling work that matters in sports. And I'm excited about what the next few years with these folks portends. Now's a good time to remember where the story of tequila started. In 1795, the first tequila distillery was opened by the Cuervo family. And 229 years later, Cuervo is still going strong. Family owned from the start. Same family, same land. Now's a good time to enjoy Cuervo. The tequila that invented tequila. Go to Cuervo.com to shop tequila or visit a store near you. Cuervo, now's a good time. 
Trademarks owned by Beckley. SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.